Hello, and welcome to Conversations from the World of Allergy, a podcast produced by the American Academy of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology. I'm your host, Dave Stukas. I'm a board-certified allergist and immunologist and serve as a social media medical editor for the Academy. Our podcast series will use different formats to interview thought leaders from the world of allergy and immunology. This podcast is not intended to provide any individual medical advice to our listeners. We do hope that our conversations provide evidence-based information. Any questions pertaining to one's own health should always be discussed with their personal physician. The Find an Allergist search engine on the Academy website is a useful tool to locate a listing of board-certified allergists in your area. Finally, use of this audio program is subject to the American Academy of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology Terms of Use Agreement, which you can find at www.aaai.org. Today's edition of our Conversations from the World of Allergy podcast series celebrates our 50th episode. I can't believe it. It it feels like we just started yesterday, but our podcast actually launched in October of 2018 as our first guest was then Academy President Dr. Bob Wood, who discussed food allergy diagnosis and management. Since that initial podcast, we've had a variety of amazing guests discuss relevant topics, the latest guidance surrounding important issues, uh, particularly as information evolved during the COVID-19 pandemic. With over 100,000 downloads to date, our podcast series ranks in the top fifth percentile of all podcasts across the world, and we are very excited about that. And I've been proud to serve as the producer and host for all of our episodes and look forward to our next 50 episodes together. Thank you so much for joining us. For today, oh my goodness, wow, we just have an absolutely amazing guest to help us celebrate our 50th episode. Dr. Susan Bailey is a board-certified allergist immunologist who has treated patients at Fort Worth Allergy and Asthma Associates in Fort Worth, Texas for over 30 years. Many of you also know that Dr. Bailey just finished serving her term as president of the American Medical Association, an organization that has been in existence for almost 175 years and has just over 240,000 members. Dr. Bailey has led a long and distinguished career centered around service on a local, state, and national level. Not surprisingly, this began as a medical student when Dr. Bailey served as chair of the AMA medical student section. We could easily spend an hour just discussing all of Dr. Bailey's leadership roles and accolades, but suffice it to say, we are honored to have her join us today. And with that, Dr. Bailey, thank you so much for taking the time to chat and welcome to the podcast. Oh, thank you. And congratulations on your 50th episodes. What a wonderful achievement. Oh, well, thank you so much. Well, I would love to discuss a wide variety of topics with you today, but before we dive into those, uh, if you could just tell us about your experience this past year serving as president of the AMA while it's fresh in your memory, I think that'd be great. Does anything stand out in a particularly positive or negative way? And I say this knowing that we're uh, in the midst of a you know global pandemic, but you know, how did things go for you? Well, it, you know, being president of the AMA uh, has been the pinnacle of my professional career and was an incredible honor, but it was dramatically different from what I anticipated it would be. The president of the AMA is the chief spokesperson for the organization, and that typically means lots of meetings and lots of travel, Um, whether it's giving speeches, lobbying, Um, you know, working with regulators, you name it. Um, Previous AMA presidents, um, there was one recent one was on the road more than 300 days in her year. Mm. So um, I was geared up to get some airline miles and (laughs) and hit the road. And um, I never, I did not make a single trip. Uh, I did all of my work as AMA president virtually. So that 
was very disappointing to me in one way because I am a true extrovert and gain energy by being around other people. And it's not quite as effective to do that uh, online, but it's not impossible. Um, but being able to um, do so many things without the time waste of travel, and boy, it really takes a lot of time. Mm-hmm. I was able to do three or four events in a day, whereas previously you're lucky to get in one event a day because uh, because of the travel requirements. And the I think the thing that I enjoyed the most, and I don't know that this would have been possible to arrange if um, we hadn't been in a virtual environment, was a series of live webinars I did um, called What Physicians Need to Know with the, um, the FDA and the CDC. And these were timed coincidentally, just beautifully to coincide with major events in the pandemic. So it was our first webinar with then FDA Director Dr. Stephen Hahn um, was the first time anybody had talked about in public using emergency use authorizations for COVID vaccines. Mm. I actually asked him that question. And when he said it's not off the table, I was like, oh, wow, we just made some news. <laughs> and then, then the next one what, with uh, Dr. Peter Marks, um, who's the, the head of uh, VBER at the CDSA, CDC, Vaccines and Biologics um, Research, was the day after those EUA guidelines came out. And the one of the most recent ones we did was the day that Johnson & Johnson took their pause for their vaccine because of the um, release of data about the seven patients that had had uh, immune thrombotic episodes in conjunction with that vaccine. So that um, we were able to get a lot of important uh, news to physicians out. So, um, you know, having not only was that an awful lot of fun to be involved with that, um, I know that we made a very important difference in getting information to physicians that they needed uh, at the time. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, we, we all had to adapt in so many different ways this year, but still, like you said, with the travel, it's, I think it's okay for all of us to feel sorrow for what we lost during all this. We all lost so much. Um, were there any locations that you had planned that you were supposed to visit that you just were, were totally bummed about that you had to miss out on? Oh, there was going to be a vaccine, ironically, a vaccine meeting <laughs> in the Vatican. Uh, <sighs> given by the Vatican medical authority. And yeah, I, that one ha- should have happened a year ago and I'm still bummed out about it. Oh my gosh. Yes. Oh, well, uh, hopefully you can, you can make it there under uh, different terms in the near future. Well, uh, you know, Dr. Bailey, you've been so extensively involved in leadership throughout your career. Was this something that came natural to you or did certain life circumstances take you down this path? You know, I've always loved being involved. I, um, you know, always joined every club and have just wanted to get as much out of any experience as I possibly could. And I guess it's kind of my natural either bossiness or impatience or maybe a little bit of both that made me decide that it was a lot better to run a committee than just be on a committee. So I 
became active in student government uh, in college at Texas A&M, um, <clears throat> was active in, um, got active in the medical student section of the Texas Medical Association and then the AMA and have just, you know, kind of worked my way up through all of those organizations. And, you know, every committee, every opportunity teaches more about leadership. And um, I, it, you know, it's, it's just always kind of come naturally to me. Hmm. Or were you born and raised in Texas as well? Well, no. I was actually born in Louisville, Kentucky hmm. during the 18 months out of my family's life that was not in Texas. Hmm. Uh, but we got back as soon as we could, as we like to say, in Texas. Um, so, But I grew up in Houston, went uh, through uh, K through 12 public school there, and did my uh, residency training uh, at Mayo in Rochester. So I was up there for seven years and then have been in Fort Worth ever since. Mm, I'm sure it was the, was the cold in Minnesota a shock to your system? Uh, yeah, but when you're a resident, you don't leave the hospital that much anyway. <laughs> <laughs> and um, it was an adventure. You know, after seven years, it it, it just got really old. But uh, the first few years, it, it was it was pretty exciting. Oh, that's great. Our specialty of allergy and immunology is unique in so many ways, particularly because of the ability to choose a career in private practice or academics. And you've been in private practice for your entire career, yet you're still heavily involved in professional organizations. Was this a difficult balance for you to achieve? And do you have any advice for our colleagues who may seek a similar path? You know, Dave, it really wasn't. I knew by the time I finished my allergy fellowship that I wanted to stay involved wherever I ended up. And, you know, so I considered a career in academics. I looked at private practice, but I knew um, then as a, a young mom, by the time I finished, well, my second son was born about a week after I finished my allergy fellowship, hmm. that um, I was a mom to two young kids and that the most important thing in my career would be flexibility. Um, and of course, allergy, you know, does lend itself to that, fortunately. And, and so I found that being in a private practice that was, uh, we did expense sharing instead of income sharing. So as long as I paid my fair share of the overhead of the practice and took my fair share of the call, my partners didn't care if I was there or not. So mm -hmm. that made going to meetings much, much easier. Um, but because I was in, and I've always been in control of my schedule. I I don't know how I would have done it otherwise. And, uh, you know, and candidly, um, I uh, got divorced after being in practice for about five years. The ch children were obviously still very young. Uh, and we were had uh, shared custody, so the boys were with my ex-husband every other weekend, and that actually I think helped me stay involved because I, fortunately, also being a physician, he understood uh, my wanting to and needing to go to meetings on weekends and things like that. So. He was always very willing to be flexible with our um, custody schedule. So um, I really, I 
never felt guilty about going to meetings because I'd have been sitting home by myself without my <laughs> kids feeling sorry for myself anyway. So, <laughs> so that, you know, uh, in a, a very, um, ironic way, um, I think helped me stay involved. Yeah, I, I always find it fascinating how each of us have different things come up in our lives that uh, impact our careers in ways that we never saw coming. Uh, and we just kind of adapt and we end up where we are for many different reasons. Now, going back to what you mentioned before about your your year as president of the AMA, which just concluded uh, at the, basically the time of, that we're recording this in mid-June of 2021, it was such a challenging year uh, in healthcare uh, and in so many different ways. In your opinion, in your experience, how did the COVID-19 pandemic expose existing disparities in care? COVID-19 showed a bright light on the cracks in our healthcare system very, very early. And I think the biggest one, aside from our um, crumbling public healthcare infrastructure, um, was the fact that um, minority and, and marginalized groups tended to be so much more severely affected by COVID. We, and we noticed early on, um, looking at the numbers, that Blacks were more likely to be hospitalized and die. Uh, Hispanics were more likely to be hospitalized and die from COVID. And the, you know, the underlying chronic disease states, whether it, as we discovered, what tended to predispose folks to more severe COVID, um, you know, obesity, hypertension, a poorly controlled diabetes are also more prevalent in those populations. So um, it became very, very obvious very early that um, we have just been glossing over um, disparities in healthcare. The terrible, tragic um, racial justice um, episodes that happened last spring, um, kind of peaking with the, the murder of George Floyd, you know, all happening at about the same time, I think also um, focused everyone's attention on the issue uh, of racial justice and racial disparities. So, I, and the conversation since then has been, um, been very prominent in our society. And uh, so I am hopeful that once the pandemic really does end, um, we will, we know better now what we need to do um, to um, get more health care in uh, minority communities um, and the incredible, incredibly important role of the social determinants of health. So you're, it sounds like you're hopeful that now that the spotlight has been shown that um, we won't go back to sort of where things were before the pandemic. Do you feel that there we have a shift in attention that we can honestly and tangibly help those most in need? And if so, what are what are some areas that you think that we can sort of you know grow on? Well, you're right. The first step is just the paying attention and realizing mm -hmm. that you know, many of us realized that there was a problem, but now it's on the national stage and dealing with, um, you know, social determinants of health. There's so much more recognition of that now than there was even a year ago. Um, we're even talking about special coding for uh, social determinants in our medical records um, so that, you know, we can track things and follow things. And um, 
so you know it's it's going to take all of us working together to make to make a difference but i'm you know i, I wouldn't you know be in the leadership business if i wasn't hopeful and didn't feel like we could make a difference but it's going to take all of us it's going to take us as individual physicians the healthcare system uh, health insurers uh, the federal government state governments and medicaid it's going to take everybody doing their part to to turn the ship around Mm. And along those lines, we've seen some interesting adaptations to medical licensing and reimbursement born out of the pandemic, particularly as it relates to telemedicine. What types of reform and long-lasting changes do we need to see in these areas as well? Well, you know, the the rate of physicians practicing telemedicine before the pandemic was, I think, in the teens. Um, mm. You know, 14, 15 percent of physicians had ever done any type of telemedicine. And you know, my own practice went from zero to 100% telemedicine in a matter almost of days uh, because things were shut down during the pandemic and we wanted to be able to still uh, take care of our patients. And, and, and I think our specialty particularly lends itself to um, telemedicine, um, you know, immunotherapy reevaluations and, you know, touching base with patients that need refills and things like that. Things that we have to be honest with ourselves that don't really require a physical exam every time we do them. And so telemedicine has been incredibly important, but the, so relieving the number one barrier in Medicare, which was where patients could be to get telemedicine um, and have Medicare reimburse it, they either had to be in a remote rural area or in a federally qualified um, health center. Mm. And um, so when those rules were temporarily relaxed during the public health emergency, um, it became so obvious how important it was for all patients, not those that were just geographically remote, uh, to be able to receive care in the comfort and the privacy of their own homes. And um, so I think that's the number one thing that um, we need to change permanently is that patients should be able to get um, telemedicine care uh, from their homes. Um, there is still a great deal of concern amongst um, the federal government, HHS, um, and of course, insurance companies, that there is a, a tremendous potential for fraud and abuse. Mm. Um, of course, you know, I, I kind of take offense at that. But, you know, as physicians, we we do police ourselves a lot. And uh, but that being said, I think that there needs to be payment parity between face to face visits and uh, telemedicine visits. And I think that um we should be paid adequately for audio only visits. Um, we deliver a lot of care over the phone and um, we ought to get reimbursed for that. So um, the AMA has been lobbying and will continue to lobby. There's a telehealth modernization act that's now in Congress that we, we hope we can get passed to make some of these temporary changes permanent. Oh, I think that would be fantastic. And I couldn't agree with more with what you said about our specialty. We are very well suited uh, to help patients from all over, especially when there's such limited access to specialty care uh, based upon 
geographic regions and, and things like that. So I sure hope that we can see some of those long-lasting changes. Well, now let me ask you, Dr. Bailey, what about us? Even before the pandemic, there was increased attention on physician burnout and wellness. How can all of us learn from the past year and what can be done systemically to improve our quality of life as medical professionals? Oh, you know, burnout <laughs> was at an all-time high uh, before the pandemic started, although um, you know, some of the surveys had shown that things had improved a bit. The uh, one study that the AMA did um, with Stanford showed that um, of the multiple parameters in burnout as def defined by uh, the maze black burnout inventory, 44% um, of physicians were positive for at least one indicator of burnout before the pandemic hit. And, I, you know, I, even though we're just now starting to come out with the data in the pandemic, we know that many physicians have worked harder than they have ever worked in their lives uh, in the past year. Many have become ill. Many have died uh, and they've watched their colleagues and their loved ones die. And so the, the, the mental anguish that many physicians have felt this year is, is really unprecedented. And I, I, I think it highlights something that at least AMA has been working on for a number of years, which is to point out that burnout is not a personal failing. Burnout is not a moral weakness or a sign that you're not uh, resilient. It is a systems failure. It is forcing you uh, to work in situations that don't jibe with your moral values um, and just the, the moral injury that occurs over time is uh, it's not because you're weak. It's because uh, the system is not designed to uh, help you function optimally. And so we need to work on systems and also help physicians, you know, realize what pain points in their lives can be improved to reduce their um, risk for burnout. You know, ironically, a number of physicians have told us that they actually have kind of rediscovered some of their joy in medicine because the work that they have done during the pandemic has been so meaningful. Um, and along those lines, medical school applications are at an all-time high, which just absolutely blows me away. Um, and so the one of the things that the AMA is working on, aside from providing lots of, you know, mental health resources uh, for physicians on our website, is that we had, before the pandemic, uh, begun a uh, a, a national study of different practice sites and different specialties to actually try to develop an evidence base for what works in uh, burnout, what doesn't work, what some of the drivers are, and then um, and then publish it afterwards. Uh, much of the the physician satisfaction work that the AMA has done. Our first one with the RAND study showing reasons for, phys for physician dissatisfaction 
and then our the time motion study that we did with uh, Dartmouth Hitchcock that showed that for every hour physicians spent face to face with patients, we spent two hours uh, on you know on our keyboards or doing administrative tasks. Um, one of the reasons that those um, I, I think have resonated have been because we got those published and peer reviewed non-AMA journals. Mm. So we couldn't be accused of it just being a, you know, a survey of our members. And, uh, but these were actually published in the, you know, the American Journal of Medicine and, um, you know, and, and, and journals like that. And so uh, people pay attention when you've got peer reviewed published research. And so we are hoping that out of our uh, practice transformation um, initiative, which we'll hopefully we'll be able to get back up at full speed this year, will uh, end up with a peer-reviewed um, published um, data that we will be able to use to drive change in the healthcare system. Mm. Do you mind sharing any personal approaches that you take when you need to unwind or reduce the stress that you have in your life? <laughs> I... Um, I, it, it, I will admit that has been really, really tough for me this year because one of my major joys is singing in my church choir. Mm. And um, I've always enjoyed music and choir practice and singing in church on Sundays when I was in town. Um, that was my release. That, that was my fellowship. That's where I saw my my buddies that's uh and we haven't been able to do that and so that has really been difficult for me um i i can't honestly say that binge watching shows on netflix is a healthy adaptation to stress but i i confess i did that a lot <laughs> did you have any favorite that you're willing to share <laughs> on oh, netflix that is well you know total you know escapist things like uh, uh -huh. longmire um, you know, right now we're watching manifest things that are, uh, you know, really kind of, uh, adventure, um, fantasy type things that, uh, really completely take you out of this, out of the pandemic and into another world that, but that has been helpful. Yeah, that's great. Uh, communication lies at the heart of everything that we do as physicians and clinicians. And as you know better than anybody, if we can't effectively ask the right questions, actively listen, and then discuss information in a manner which our patients can understand, an optimal care simply can't be achieved. What are your thoughts on the current state of communication skills among medical professionals in general, as well as ways to improve in this area? The electronic health record did not help our profession mm. when it comes to communicating with our patients. Um, patients were complaining, and we didn't like it ourselves, but patients really didn't like the feeling that their doctors were staring at a computer screen or a keyboard instead of looking at them. And I think, the you know, it's interesting the way the pandemic has changed that because you have to look in your screen to talk to your patient. Hmm. And um, so I think many of us relearned the value of really looking someone in the eye and having conversations rather than just trying to 
you know, get all the data in. Um, I, I think that, uh, and so I'm hoping that that there'll be some improvement in that. And and just, you know, one of my priorities, which was reducing administrative burdens that physicians have, uh, I'm hopeful that the new ENM coding system that came in at the beginning of 2021 uh, will reduce the amount of time that physicians have to enter data uh, and uh, improve the time that they can, um, you know, talk to their patients uh, one-on-one. You know, it, we may not go back to handshakes. Uh, we'll see what the future holds, but yeah. eye, contact, eye contact and listening can always occur, right? Yes. <laughs> yeah. So in addition to challenges with individual communication on a personal level, uh, we've seen that public health messaging has really been at the forefront this past year, unlike any time in, in recent memory. And we've also seen an outright assault on science and medical experts, including an unprecedented level of state and local medical directors stepping down due to this pressure. This is a really complex topic, but can you just reflect upon how you think that we got to this stage and what we can do about it? Oh, um, this was really um, a distressing thing to deal with during my presidency. Now, there have been, um, there has been an anti-science, anti-intellectual, anti-vaccine, you know, trend in our society that has been growing uh, before the pandemic even started. And unfortunately, um, I think, think the pandemic made it much worse. I have said many times in the past year, one of the more unfortunate things about the pandemic was that it occurred during an election year Mm. and issues that are not political at all got politicized. You know, wearing masks became a political statement, whether or not your kids could go back to school became a political statement. Uh, And then, of course, and now with vaccines, uh, with anti-vax sentiment, I think being at an all time high. I think that um, the, you know, the change in administration, um, you know, and the AMA strives to be a nonpartisan organization. Um, But, um, you know, I can speak as, you know, the leader of the AMA that our communication uh, with the Biden administration has been much more frequent and much more, um, uh, in you know, meaningful uh, than it was during the the Trump administration. So my my term kind of you know straddled both both administrations. Um, but you know, public health authorities should always be given, um, I believe, the the um, the benefit of the doubt, you know, when making decisions, and they're the ones that need to be making scientific recommendations, you know, not politicians. I I think we saw early on what can happen um, when politics does get too involved in in medicine and um, how much better people can do their jobs when it's when it's not. You know, public health is so uh, complex for so many reasons, uh, as you mentioned. And um, just from a pure medical standpoint, it's just fascinating to me to think through all the different layers that really have to take place from an individual level and responsibility for ourselves and our neighbors and our family members to a community level, to a, a state level, national level. Um, but yeah, as you mentioned, just 
we're at a t we're living a time unlike any other where those public health experts are really under assault and it's really um damaging their ability to do what they need to do uh so i hope we can come out of this and uh we'll look to leaders such as yourself to to show us the way <laughs> For the first time in history, this is so fascinating and remarkable, we've had women simultaneously serving as president of the American College of Allergy Asthma Immunology, the American Academy of Allergy Asthma Immunology, and then when you were president of the American Medical Association. What was this like for you to personally be a part of this momentous achievement? Oh, well, it was just, it was so awesome. And, you know, and at the same time, we had women as presidents of the American Academy of Pediatrics and the American mm -hmm. College of Physicians, um, you know, our two kind of parent groups, if you will. And within the AMA, um, I was the third female president in a row mm. and all of our major council chairs were female this year. So I, I think it is uh, a wonderfully strong statement um, that, um, you know, women, I, I think are finally, although we've still got a long way to go, um, you know, reaching leadership levels and um, are, you know, are good leaders and are respected by their male and female peers. Um, and the fact that so many women were president all at once, I, I just, it was a very special opportunity to, to be a part of that. I just wish, wish we could have been in the same place at the same <laughs> time and actually seen each other in person instead of having to do things virtually. But, um, you know, women are now starting to slightly outnumber men in medical school, it'll be interesting to see how that trend continues. Um, in veterinary medicine, um, that has been two-thirds to three-fourths uh, women in vet schools for a number of years now. Um, and there are more practicing veterinarians that are women than men. Um, so will the same thing happen in human medicine? It'll be interesting mm -hmm. to see. Mm -hmm. and, and as we see more, more women uh, become established and gain these prominent leadership positions, which is fantastic, the pandemic has also emphasized the widening gap between men and women in academics as more women were tasked with putting their careers on hold this year to stay home with their children, uh, to supervise virtual learning or with closure of childcare centers. So as we move forward, how can we improve upon this and try to prevent this from ever happening again and really support women in important areas such as research and grant funding? At the beginning of the pandemic, when everybody was at home, um, it was my naive hope that this would um, demonstrate how important it is for every member of the family to pitch in and um, be involved in child care and taking care of the house and, um, you know, everything that, you know, goes into just being a functioning, you know, family in our society. And, uh, but that really didn't happen. And as usual, women were shuttled shouldered with uh, more than their fair share of um, household uh, tasks with um, going, you know, helping their kids go to school online while simultaneously they're trying to work online. Um, it's been a very stressful year. And, and I think it highlights the fact that there are some things that you can't just let happen organically on their own that you have to be very intentional about. Um, and I think that our society needs to become more intentional 
about involving you know women and uh, minorities in leadership roles, making sure that they have the um, support that they need, the grant funding that they need, the research opportunities that they need, the publishing opportunities that they need, and um, that you know we we all need to help each other in this world. And I, I think we need to be very deliberate about. Um, increasing, you know, making sure that these opportunities are available for everybody. Mm -hmm. Switching gears a little bit here, it always seems like there's some form of encroachment on the scope of practice of allergists and the conditions that we're specially trained to diagnose and treat. How can our specialty maintain prominence as the true experts for helping patients with really some of the most common chronic health conditions affecting children and adults? Uh, scope of practice has been um, one of my um, foci in, in the past year. Um, you know, that even though we've been under the radar for a good part of it, the AMA has been incredibly involved in scope of practice issues for a long, long time. Um, we have a scope of practice partnership, which is made up of many different state societies and uh, specialty organizations, because really scope of practice is a state issue. You know, with the exception of some things going on in the VA, um, states make their own scope of practice laws. And so states have to be the ones that um, hold the line when it comes to scope of practice. Um, and I testified in front of three different state legislatures, virtually, of course, um, and, you know, did a whole lot of education about scope of practice for students and, um, and physicians. And, you know, in our case in allergy, um, I think we have seen um, throughout our careers, um, you know, I remember back when I was studying for my boards, it was controversial areas, you know, controversial treatments in medicine. Hmm. Um, and we, I think we've become a little bit more um, honest about, you know, the, the quackery that exists out there. But, <laughs> but to me, that's not necessarily a scope of practice incursion. That's just a, uh, um, a matter of, of, of patient safety. Um, but as far as, you know, protecting our ability to, you know, to take care of our patients, um, I am a strong believer in um, physician-led teams. And there is an incredibly valuable role for every member of that team. Um, and we need every member um, to work, uh, to function, um, but I, I do believe that those teams need to be physician led. And I think that, you know, this is many times when we're having scope of practice discussions with other uh, medical professionals, um, we point out the difference in training and the number of hours that, you know, go into becoming a physician versus, say, a physician assistant um, we won't get into that discussion. That would take an hour itself, <laughs> uh, nurse practitioners, et cetera. And in our specialty, I think the hours and hours that we have spent in our fellowships, you know, learning the immunology, learning the aerobiology, learning all of this, I, I, th I think that we really need to 
brand ourselves as the experts, you know, because of this extra training that we get. And, um, but at the same time, still be available to our patients. Many allergists function as primary care physicians for their patients because most mm -hmm. of what's going on with them is either respiratory or GI or derm, and, and we can take care of a good many of their problems. And, uh, and so maintaining that expertise uh, and also that one-to-one -one patient touch, you know, I'm hoping will um, help us, you know, fight off scope incursions. Mm -hmm. I, I couldn't agree more, especially what you said about our ability to have such long lasting relationships with, with patients um, as, as they, as we help them manage not only their allergic conditions, but really anything else that's impacting their health as well. And I love your call to arms of we, we can't really rest on our laurels as allergists. We need to go out and claim our expertise. And this is what we do. And this is why we're so good at what we do. And this is how we can make patients feel better and give them mm -hmm. that quality of life that they deserve. Well, I can't thank you enough for really answering some, I threw some big questions at you and you're such a, a great uh, sport about it. And I, I, I appreciate you taking the time to, to share your thoughts on that. So what comes next for you? Do you have a long overdue vacation and some of that travel that you missed out on last year? Or are you already moving on to your next role? <laughs> well, I, I am hoping to, uh, to do some traveling and to relax a little bit this summer. And, uh, but actually I'm kind of looking forward to uh, getting, you know, I, I've seen patients by telemedicine throughout the pandemic, but I miss them. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I'm looking forward to being able to, to, to get back with patients. And other than that, who knows? <laughs> Were you still seeing patients during your year as president? Yes. Um, in fact, I ended up seeing more patients than I thought I would because I couldn't go anywhere. So, um, so three mornings a week, I did uh, telemedicine appointments with established patients. I didn't take any new patients because I didn't think that would be fair, fair to them, but mm -hmm. um, with established patients. And so I ended up actually um, seeing more patients than I, than I ever dreamed I would this year. That's really interesting. You were busier clinically <laughs> yeah. than you thought during your year as president. Oh my goodness. Well, Dr. Bailey, as we wrap up here, if you're game for it, uh, and feel free to say no, I'd like to ask you some seemingly unrelated questions, but if you'll bear with me, I hope it'll serve a purpose for our listeners and be really useful. Uh, would you be game for that for a few of more questions? Of course. Okay. All right. So these are going to come out of left field, and uh, but there's a theme here. First question, what advice would you give to a college student who's thinking about a career in medicine? I, first of all, would not discourage them. Um, like some of our colleagues do, um, medicine I think is 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 one of the greatest honors um, a professional can have um, to to care for somebody else's health and have their life in your hands. It it is a calling, and so. But I, I want that that college student to, to really really think about it. Um, think and if if that's really what they want to do if they can't see themselves doing anything else uh and they've got that fire in the belly if you were uh to take care of patients then then go for it i love it go for it <laughs> uh if you're willing to share what has been your biggest failure that ended up being your greatest lesson Ooh, um, this past year or just in general? In general. And I, I realize I caught you off guard, so feel free to collect. Oh, your no, thoughts. no, that's okay. Um, you know, I, I think 
you know, I, I touched on it earlier. Um, the, when my first marriage ended, mm -hmm. um, it really threw me for a loop and it made me question everything. And I, I think that it taught me, um, the, how much I really can endure that pain only lasts for so long and my practice and my children were what kept me putting one foot in front of the other every day. And so it made me realize how strong I really was and how um, I could, you know, I could face just about anything if I could rebuild my life after that. Hmm. Oh, thank you for sharing that. That's I, I also agree that failures end up sometimes giving us our greatest strengths, uh, but can't always realize that when you're in the moment, of course. Okay, you brought it up earlier, uh, and I'm talking about your disdain for the electronic medical record. So <laughs> if you could travel back in time before the creation of the EMR, what changes would you have implemented from the outset? And you can absolutely use today's technology to answer. I would have... Um, not allowed the EHR to be developed really as a billing um, tool and mm. as a um, data gathering tool. Um, I would have designed it to be really geared towards um, our patients. I would have um, incorporated voice technology into mm -hmm. it much, much earlier. Um, I would have put, thrown some augmented intelligence in there to um, help. Like, okay, this is something that I've always wanted to be able to do, and I'm so frustrated that I can't yet. <laughs> so, so I've got a patient uh, with chronic asthma. I have them on um, a combination of, you know, lab inhaled steroid. And of course, every year their formulary changes. Mm. And um, why can't my uh, computer or something um, automatically come up with, okay, this is the brand that their company wants paid once you know wants you to use this year and will be their lowest copay and here's the pharmacy where they should get it that really shouldn't be that hard to do uh prior authorizations have been one of my uh priorities this year as well um but i i would make it less keyboard dependent more voice dependent um and um make it easier for patients to to co-author um their medical records and have access to them. Hmm. Okay. If you could fly a blimp with one message over every major city, what would it say? Get vaccinated. <laughs> <laughs> yep, right. that's it. That's easy. Yeah. Okay. We'll launch the fleet as soon as we're done. <laughs> and then last question, what book or books have you either read multiple times uh, because they have deep meaning to you or given as a gift most often? I have, you know, and this one really came in um, handy with the pandemic. One of my favorite books that I've reread multiple times is The Great Influenza um, mm -hmm. by, I believe, by John Barry, um, that goes over the um, 1918 
what we called then the Spanish flu. Um, and really the, it also um, reviews the development of medicine in America, as well as the development of public health in America uh, and dealing with the pandemic. Um, it, it was really helpful for me to go back and read that again um, during the pandemic and, and relearn those lessons, but in real time. Um, and I, I just think it's an incredible book. I enjoy reading nonfiction more than fiction. Um, so I, that, that's, I would probably put that one, you know, right at the top of the list. What was the title again? The Great Influenza. Okay. Uh, if I may, I am almost finished reading Michael Lewis's latest um, called Premonition, which uh, chronicles um, pandemic preparedness and goes back to some of the origins of you know the, the major players behind the scene leading up to what we're going through now. Um, and I found it to be just enthralling. Uh, that one's on my list. He's a great author and um, everything he writes is, is, is so readable, uh, but also ha always has such good lessons. Yes, absolutely. Well, Dr. Bailey, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. I know you've been extremely busy uh, and it was just such a delight to have you join us for our 50th episode. Uh, is there anything else you'd like to add before we say goodbye? I just want to thank you for, for doing this work and being a social media um, um, advocate and demonstrating the important role that social media can play in uh, communicating with each other and educating our patients. Oh, well, thank you very much for that. We hope you enjoyed listening to today's episode. Please visit www.aaai.org for show notes and any pertinent links from today's conversation. If you like the show, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast through Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify so you can receive new episodes in the future. Thank you again for listening.